Conversations here at Penelope's Loom. I'm Katie Saunders. Recently, we shared a PowerPoint presentation with you on the site about the way Martin Luther addressed mental health and how his compassion and mercy towards melancholia matched his theology. If you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to go do so. Today, I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had with the author of that presentation, Dr. Stephen Saunders, who is the chair of the psychology department at Marquette University and has also written a two-volume work entitled A Christian Guide to Mental Illness, which is a wonderful resource for all Christians and especially for pastors. I really enjoyed learning more about how Dr. Saunders became interested in psychology and interested in Martin Luther's perspective of mental health and the right relationship between faith and psychology, and I hope you will too. I think everybody's going to be able to figure out who you are <laughs> in relationship to me because of your name. Uh, but just in case they can't figure that out, um, you are obviously my father-in-law. And uh, should I refer to you as Dr. Saunders on here? Because I think that would be... Uh, no. Oh. Just say you. <laughs> Dr. Steven Saunders. So... Um, you have a presentation up on Penelope's Loom right now uh, about Martin Luther and mental health. And um, so let's just start with uh, a little bit about your background in psychology, how you first became interested in studying psychology or how you ended up teaching uh, at Marquette. Well, I, uh, I, Graduated high school and went to Northwestern University, which is a pretty good school. Um, and uh, my intention was to uh, be a medical doctor. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, uh, this is how I sort of explain things, which is I was a, I was a bright child. I was a very nice child. I was raised in a Catholic family. Um, my dad was Catholic till the day he died, and you know some of my siblings are still Catholic. I am now Lutheran, of course, but um, the uh, you know the you know my aunts and a lot of the teachers that I had, especially the nuns. I again, I was bright, I was nice, so they said, "Well, you need to be a priest." And through about fourth grade, uh, I thought, "Okay, yeah, I'll be up." priest. And then about sixth grade started to fade on that idea. And about uh, eighth grade, um, uh, sort of discovered girls and thought, no, that's not going to be a priest. Um, but I'm still smart. So uh, what's, you know, what else could I do to, you know, you know, to combine nice and smart? Well, doctor. So that was, that was about the extent of the planning there. Um, and so I got to, but it lasted all the way until I got to college. And that plan lasted about a semester um, or two when I started to take uh, uh, chemistry. And um, I think I even took a physics class and I hated it. I just hated it. My, my second semester, uh, freshman year, I stumbled into, literally kind of just took practically as a lark, a course called Introduction to Psychology, Intro Introductory Psychology, and I loved it. I, I just immediately, um, you know, it, it was the course that, unlike the other courses, calculus and chemistry and 
in French. Um, uh, the uh, you know I would I would I would uh, reserve psychology for the end of my studying because I enjoyed it so much. It was it was just so fun, interesting to read. And uh, over the over the course of my and and then I realized again you know. Uh, I guess I wasn't that bright, but in college I realized uh, someone told me, well, yeah, you can get a major in this. Um, I said, well, that's great. And so I, I applied, to, uh, you know, I, I set out to get a major in psychology and take all that coursework. And my junior year, I, I, was, uh, I was a work-study student, so I was getting paid to do, you know, probably 10 hours of work a week and um, applied to work with a fellow by the name of Ken Howard, who is in the Department of Psychology. And um, <clears throat> over, the, over the course of uh, you know, acquaintance with him, you know, I didn't really see much of him, but when I did, I really liked him and he seemed to like me and uh, got involved in a fairly intensive project my senior year again, still working with him, and um, um, said, um, you know, during that, I'm going to be applying to a clinical psychology program, and he said, well, you make sure you apply here, um, which um, I did, and got in there, and uh, started my career in, um, as a graduate student in, in, in psychology. Just kind of, kind of, inherently develop this interest in how people in the same situation can can be thinking and reacting so differently so you know one of my first therapy clients was this i think he probably 18 years old um kind of short stocky um just sort of uh, just a really really odd young man and um, practically disconnected from reality in a lot of ways. Um, and yet he showed up every week for therapy. And I got interested in, and then I'd had other clients that clearly needed therapy. They had many more, many more resources. They had advantages that he did not have who would stop coming to therapy. And I became interested in the notion that here's this guy, he's 18, he's living with his grandparents, his mom is an addict, um, has no business knowing about psychotherapy, and here he is coming in every week um, okay. doing it. And so I became interested in how people get into therapy, um, you know, how they decide they have a problem, how they decide they need to go talk to someone about this. And then how 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 they stick with how it. Stick to it, yeah. Yeah. So so I wanted to, you know, I proposed to my mentor, Ken Howard, uh, you know, I'd like to study this. And, you know, like any good mentor, he said, sounds good. <clears throat> and uh, figure out how you're gonna do that. Um, and uh, so I started to do some research and um, was fascinated to learn. Um, you know, relatively new research back then that has been verified again and again and again, been replicated again and again and again, is that in any given year, about one in five persons will experience a mental illness, being, huh. you know, uh, substance use disorder, 
one of the depressions, um, one of the anxiety disorders. Um, so one in five persons and, and of those about one in five get help for it. Hmm. They go for therapy for it. But another one in five go to their medical doctor, um, which is a bad idea because they really don't know what they're doing with regards to mental illness. So it's about, it's about half of them get help of some sort, but about half of those half, only half of those half get appropriate help. And uh, whereas a lot go to people who kind of don't know what they're doing. So that's sort of my introduction to being interested in um, mental illness, mental health issues, um, you know, I, I, you know, given the one in five figure, you know, all of us know someone with mental illness. It's just that um, we don't necessarily know who they are. And, right. And um, that's the reason that we don't is because they don't tell us. Um, and that's actually how I introduce my book, uh, Christian Guide to Mental Illness. It's a, it's a, a book I published with Northwestern Publishing House. I kind of start with that, you know, in any church, a church of a small church, let's say of 200 people, um, one in five is 40 people sitting in the church um, right now have a mental illness. Mental illnesses don't endure forever, especially if you get treatment for it, but they come and they go. So in, any, in a lifetime, over the course of a lifetime, it's about one out of every two persons will experience a mental illness. Uh, wow. And, and you, I, I'm guessing a lot of people don't realize that, mm. um, especially within the church, especially Christians. Um, I don't, yeah, I, I, well, I doubt well, most people think about that. I, I think you're right that, that most people aren't aware, but I think there's this, uh, there's this paradox in that, um, that in fact, most people are aware. It's just that most people are not aware that most people are aware. In <laughs> other words, you know, you take that number one in five and you think about, you know, someone with severe depression or someone, uh, parents raising a child um, with autism, they, are not the, the they've escaped that one in five group. No one wants to be part of that group, but you know, but everyone knows someone. Yeah. Just that they don't know that everyone else knows someone too. Right. So there's this paradox of everyone knows someone, but they, you know, given that we don't talk about it, there's so many things that we openly talk about, but we don't talk about mental illness. And so everyone is thinking, well, yeah, I have it, but no one else does. Whereas in fact, you know, actually uh, one other person in this room of 10 people, I'm in a small group of 10 and, and uh, there's two of us who have it. And by the way, uh, both of us are, you know, parents or both of us are siblings or both of us are children. Um, so everyone who loves us know we have this. So, um, so yes, there's this paradox that there's a lack of awareness. But what I honestly, what I encourage pastors to do is to include in their prayers. And this is, this is what 
what mental health professionals refer to as outreach. Do outreach, which is include in your prayers. We, we pray for all of those suffering from emotional distress and emotional problems. Hmm. And uh, what that will do is tell those people sitting in the aisles and those people sitting next to them that love them, uh, those people sitting in the pews, um, yeah. Oh, you know about me. Yeah. You're, you're recognized. You're seen. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of opens up a window for them. Yeah. I like to think that someone, <clears throat> someone sitting in shame as if mental illnesses were shameful, as if somehow people are weak or bad for having it, uh, right. for having a mental illness, um, that someone sitting in the, in the pews kind of suffering alone suffering silently that maybe that person will be um able more able to go to pastor and say hey um do you have a moment that we can talk i'd like to you know i haven't i haven't talked to anyone about this but i would like to so that, that yeah. that's why i think the outreach is important yeah absolutely um so you mentioned that you have a book that you wrote on this topic um, do you talk about, I mean, I assume, uh, you talk about Luther and kind of, so you, in this presentation on Penelope's loom, the, the topic is Luther and, and mental health. So I assume that the, the book includes some analysis of, um, how Luther addressed mental health. Um, so what initially kind of provoked your interest or, or, you know, made, made you ask that question, what does Luther say about this or does he comment on this? Well, I, I uh, started doing therapy um, my second year of grad school. So I would have been 23 and I'm 57 now. So it's over 30 years. Um, and uh, I've done it pretty much every week. Um, you know, I am a uh, professor. Um, Marquette doesn't pay me to do therapy. They pay me to teach and to do research. But I've always, you know, as part of teaching, I've always been a clinician as well. Uh, okay. And see anywhere from two to five persons a week throughout my academic career, which started in 1994. And, uh, you know, so again, I was raised Catholic. I fell away from the faith in late high school. Um, I met uh, Ruth Preuss in college, and Ruth Preuss's father is um, uh, Robert Preuss, uh, the, uh, you know, many would say the, the greatest theologian of the 20th century. I would certainly argue that. And, uh, you know, we, we fell in love, and um, she introduced me um, to the, the, how Luther saw faith quite differently, which is, you know, it's not that it's not that we can avoid sin. It's rather we, we, we strive to not sin, but we will sin. Um, Ruth's mom, Donna Preuss, um, I, I will never forget sitting in her backyard, probably having a cocktail. And it was just the two of us. And she was asking me about, you know, my history because she knew that we were falling in love. And, and she said, and I, and again, I'll never forget this. She said, well, we Lutherans believe we live in a state of sin. 
and it was the most profound theological insight um, anyone had had given me. Um, so I became a Lutheran and uh, parallel to becoming a clinician and uh, got immersed into the Lutheran faith. Uh, the, uh, the great small-ish book uh, written by Robert Preuss, Getting into the Theology of Concord, read that. I started to teach Sunday school at our Lutheran church, um, which, you know, took me back to the Bible. And uh, it started to really all come together for me, especially, and parallel, again, I'm doing clinical work. And I have an admiration for the people that I'm working with, because I know it was hard for them to get therapy, to, 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 to overcome their sense of embarrassment, um, again, as if there's something wrong with them having a mental illness. Um, and yet they, they came in and they gift me with their presence and they gift me with their stories and they gift me with uh, the chance to try to help them. And um, during that time, I'm, you know, I, you know, exposed to obviously a lot of other mental health professionals and realizing that, you know, some of my colleagues really have this us them mentality. You know, I feel so sorry for my clients. I'm so glad I'm part of us and that I'm not part of them. Whereas I think part of the reason I've always been a successful as a clinician is that I've never thought like that. Um, I've never thought um, I'm so glad I'm not this person. I've thought I'm glad I'm not suffering like this person is, but I've never thought um, wow, this person is different than me. Rather, I've always thought if I were that person, I would be that person. If I had this person's background and experiences, I would be depressed. I would be anxious. I would be uh, drinking too much, whatever it is. So, and, you know, the, the parallel between, you know, we are all sinners. We live in a state of sin and there but for the grace of God go I, um, you know, just, just started to get a, you know, started to get this tickle, so to speak, this, this vague, the, the, this, this quiet voice. There's a lot of parallels here. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to kind of look more into it and uh, saw that the parallels were actually you know, fairly spot on. I, I think having a Lutheran perspective of all of us, you know, St. Paul's perspective, all have fallen short of the grace of God. And, and having the natural perspective, that, that's the theological teaching I'm getting, combine that with the natural perspective of, you know, this person is just like me. You know, they're, they're in pain, they're in emotional pain, but they're just like me. Yeah. started to, you know, see those parallels. And um, when I had some spare time after getting tenure, um, I started to really, really delve into it more. The reason I wrote the book is because over the course of my career, um, you know, again, being the fortunate husband of Ruth Saunders, Ruth Preuss, daughter of Robert Preuss, and um, 
Robert was very respectful of what I did, interested in what I did. So my in-laws, but also other pastors would call me, it would happen about every three months and ask me about a parishioner. One in five parishioners has a mental health problem and a lot of them go to their pastors for help. And so I would get these calls and, and give what I thought was kind of basic information, one in five persons and most don't go for help. And it's related to how we are raised to think about ourselves and others and realizing that you know what i what i was so knowledgeable about and educated about was new information to pastors i thought i need to write this down and and uh put it into book form and so that inspired the that inspired the book well uh then when you started looking into all of this where did you begin um with luther's works kind of what yeah what specific works of his pertain to this the most? Um, I think you, uh, I know you talk about table talk and yeah. his letters yeah. um, in, in the presentation. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, um, I'm trying to, I'm gonna give an honest answer here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did I start, uh, um, so the the parallel between feeling bad about having mental illness and feeling you know we we do feel guilty for being a sinner but we are reassured that our sins are forgiven um i kind of wondered if if luther um you know and, and by the way where they overlap uh, you know if we know god loves us we should never feel terrible we should never feel depressed or anxious we know god takes care of us it's right in the bible god cares about every the, the smallest feather of, of every bird um the hairs on our head um you know so combining those two you know it, it creates this and i wondered about whether luther would agree um but i sort of came to the notion that, wow, there's a lot of Christians who feel an extra special guilt related to um, um, having a mental health problem, such as depression and anxiety, which are 80% of all mental health problems are either depression or anxiety um, or a combination of those. And so then I tried, tried to find some of the things that Luther had written and did some uh, searching on the internet and searching through books and um, came across uh, Letters of Consolation, um, which is a book, you know, that came, that, that, that pulls together a lot of Luther's letters right. of consolation um, uh, to individuals and uh, also came across some um, information about the, some of the lectures that, uh, some of the preaching that Luther had done about you know how emotions get in the way of faith you know but but luther explicitly writing to people with depression um what was then called melancholia it was just fascinating to see him it was really really it was a joy actually to read him um saying what you know in a sense i had hoped he would say right um but it was also you know it was a joy but it was a real kind of a surprise too Really? Hmm. A surprise just because you didn't 
uh, expect a church leader or someone from that time to kind of have that same awareness of, of what the problem was and what the answer needed to be? The, um, you know, I think, you know, it, it's likely the case that, well, I shouldn't have been surprised because I think um, we didn't have mental health professionals back in Luther's time. Um, you know, the, the psychology and theology were probably much, much more closely related back yeah. then. Right. And, you know, people did write him feeling explicitly bad about, you know, write him depressed, um, some almost suicidal about, about the sins that they'd committed. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, just, and Luther writing back, basically saying over and over again, um, <laughs> right, Luther writing back saying, don't be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite how he put it. <laughs> but, uh, Luther's saying, of course you're a sinner. Um, apparently you didn't know this until now, until you've become aware of your sins. Right. Uh, and of course, and of course you feel bad about this. Like, uh, right. of course you're... Of course you feel bad. Exactly. Right. Um, but uh, therefore, sin boldly. And, I, and honestly, you know, I was fascinated by hearing that expression, sin boldly, um, probably, um, you know, gosh, it would have been 20 years ago, probably when I first heard it and uh, had, had to have someone explain it to me and it wasn't really that well explained. And so I kept, kept my ear out for it. And I think this is really what Luther this is this is where Luther was writing. This, these are the people that he was writing to when he said that famous thing, the Melanchthon and, and others uh, telling them, um, you know, sin, peca fortiere, sin boldly, join us hard-boiled sinners. Apparently, you, you, you know, you, you were just a trifling sinner. Right. Um, just all these wonderfully, you know, evocative and, and practically confrontational um, in a in a loving way, and um, you know, I think it was just uh, it was, it's a real joy to 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 read what he wrote, because you know people with mental health problems they do need to be kind of confronted that this no this is not something to be ashamed of, and yes this is something you need to to address and think differently and do differently so that you can again feel better and be better. Yeah. Um, it seems like that's kind of the answer that pastors and then also just fellow Christians um, should give to their to their neighbor who they know is suffering from something like this is, is that you need you should first of all not be ashamed of it and second of all seek seek healing seek help um, yes yeah 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 as yeah. opposed to and I say that as opposed to actually yourself trying to help them with it. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the, you know, the, the main, one of the main themes of the book, well, the, you know, the, the, the books, there's actually two volumes, the books that I've written, um, they are to make pastors aware of the prevalence of mental illness, to assure them that people 
uh, they know people with mental illness, even if they don't know who they are, that it's perfectly appropriate for people to reach out to them for help. And therefore they should be able to recognize what it is that is happening, um, that this person is depressed and anxious. They should assure them theologically, spiritually, this is nothing to be ashamed of. And then they should assure the person, I'm not qualified to help you. And, um, but we can find someone who is. And uh, so a big part of the second volume is the whole section on finding a qualified mental health professional, yeah. someone who will be uh, not, not even someone who is not disparaging of mental, uh, of, of Christianity, um, <clears throat> someone who is not disparaging of Lutheran um, Christianity, someone who, um, will potentially work with the pastor um, to um, help the person because what pastors offer, I cannot. What I offer, pastors are not qualified to do. Right. That's so. it. And and um, that leads me to another question because it seems like mental health and spiritual health overlap so much. Um, you know, because of this idea of theology of. Um, or a theologian of, of glory versus a theologian of the cross, um, you know, our, our actual daily lives interact quite closely with our faith. Um, and yet pastors and psychologists can't, if they're not interchangeable, they can't do the same things. Um, and you, you need both. I, uh, so John Fairman, um, Pastor John Fairman, um, he's in the Minneapolis area now. Um, he, uh, when I was living there, he referred one of his parishioners to me and after about five sessions, uh, uh you know, he, I, I referred her back. Yeah. He called, okay. called me up and said, what are you doing? <laughs> I sent her to you. I said, pastor, I said, John, she doesn't need what I've got. She needs what you've got. Hmm. Feeling guilty about some sin. And, um, as she should, and she needs to hear God's forgiveness. I don't do that. I could, but you're her pastor. You're the one to do that. Right. So I can help people feel less, not, not ashamed of having a mental illness. I can help people overcome their mental illness. Um, again, teaching them to think differently, teaching them how they're thinking, teaching them how they're acting, and teaching them new ways of thinking and acting. Um, to feel better, um, but I cannot um, address their, you know, their spiritual needs. Yeah. And that's what pastors really need to do. They're, you know, and, and so I do refer back to to pastors. Um, by the way, you know, one thing that I didn't talk about in the presentation, but it's really important is that uh, there are a lot of mental health professionals who would be happy. They say that they will um, address the theological needs of their clients as well. Some of them call themselves Christian counselors and uh, they should be avoided. Um, there are pastors who are counselors and that's fine. Um, you know, I would endorse those folks, but there are counselors out there who uh, try to incorporate Christian doctrine 
into the work they do. And they come really, you know, one of them, uh, the introduction to a book on uh, their perspective, the, this Christian counseling perspective, um, they declare that we, I try, uh, you know, we Christian counselors, we try to teach our clients to be more Christ-like, huh. which is the theology of glory right. in a bright red bow. It's not appropriate. So, so those are the types of counselors that we also should avoid. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah. No, that's a really good warning. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think um, my la kind of the last thing I want to talk about uh, really briefly, because I think we've touched on it, but um, I think Christian counselors are often used as uh, kind of like the compromise for some Christians who are really wary of psychologists and, and like that profession. And so they find these Christian counselors and they, you know, that, that's kind of what I've seen. Um, from different people I know, and um, that seems that seems just as as dangerous. <laughs> um, well, I, th I think it is. My first question would be, what do you mean you are a Christian counselor? Yeah. You know, if I know someone is a Christian, you know, I will remind them in therapy that that God loves them. You know, that's sure. pretty. You know, there there are some things that kind of all religious faiths have in common. Um, murder is wrong, you know, sex outside of marriage is wrong, God loves you. You know, I'm not really preaching to someone. I'm not trying to change the way they think. I'm not potentially contradicting what they are, what they believe. But um, it is really hard, you know, the, if I were to summarize the theology of glory, it would be that uh, we work our way to faith with God, in God. We work our way. We are responsible for our Christian faith. And, um, you know, we can call it synergism, um, but it's actually synergism on, on steroids, I think. This, this idea that, well, you're just thinking wrong if, you're, if your faith is, is you know, if, if you're not sure. And uh, I'll help you strengthen your faith. I will help you strengthen your faith. You know, that's just an, it's an abomination. Um, it, it, you know, there, there's nowhere in the Bible that you can justify saying that. Um, it, it is not, and, and for me, thank God it's not up to me. Thank God my faith is not up to me because I am not strong enough. So, you know, we don't, we don't strengthen our faith of our own will. Anyone who thinks like that, and I think, I think Christian counselors do. You know, I've read enough of what they say. Ooh. That's the job of the pastor. That's the job of the pastor is right. to maintain people in their faith, or if they're not in faith, to bring them to faith. Right. Thinking wrong to, you know, to, to teach them properly about about faith. So. Before I met you, I mean, before I met Eric and you through Eric, um, I don't think I had ever really been exposed to. A, a proper understanding of what what psychology should do for the Christian um, yeah. and what mental health just the relationship of mental health to your spiritual life um, yeah and and I'm sure part of that is just because that 
my dad's a pastor. And so I always came at it from that perspective. Um, but yeah, well, thank you for talking to me about all this and thanks for your presentation. Oh, you're very welcome. We'll see you around. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.